Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. Today I'll be speaking with Nicole Kuinhing Aboites about her recent book, Asian Place, Filipino Nation, A Global Intellectual History of the Philippine Revolution, 1887-1912, published by Columbia University Press in 2020. She earned her PhD at Yale in 2017, and since then has been a research fellow and supervisor in history at Cambridge. Nicole, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you so much. So um, before we get into the book, which I loved and I think is a really important intervention into both Filipino history, but also into Southeast Asian uh, history and Southeast Asian studies, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself, um, how you became a specialist in the intellectual history of the Philippine Revolution? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so how I became a historian was basically I tried everything else and hated it. And um, academia is one of the few things I was good at. Um, and I was working. That's my story with... too. <laughs> like, I can't figure no. out the business end of a hammer. So I, I guess I had to become a historian. <laughs> I was working at an advertising agency and I just wanted to use my brain to ask big questions. Um, and then I found that um, I slotted into academia quite easily because I was asking fairly academic niche questions. And um, I've always been interested in what we now call global intellectual history, which is a new field that we are as yet just constructing with only one journal dedicated to it so far and just a growing handful of centers and conferences. But when I started my doctorate, when the field didn't yet exist technically, I simply thought of myself as a Southeast Asianist who was interested in the intellectual worlds and letters of those other than white Westerners. Um, but I did draw great intellectual inspiration from the subaltern studies um, and civilization discourses and area studies fields that had long looked at folk consciousness and canonical non-Western thinkers. Um, but I did not want to do what those fields long had. I was hoping to efface what I saw as the artificial boundaries between Western thinkers and non-Western thinkers in academia, and between those who supposedly thought globally and those who supposedly only thought locally. Um, and I wanted to show non-Western thought and thinkers as both legible to and intertwined with Western thought, um, what we now just call global intellectual thinking. Um, and as a Filipina working within global intellectual history and beginning her doctorate, it was natural for me, I think, to return to the foundational moment of modern intellectual and political Philippine history, which was the Philippine Revolution, which created the Philippine nation. Um, and seeking what may obtain from a more regional and global view of the Philippine Revolution, I wondered about geographies of political affinity, what impact did the revolution have in Southeast Asia, and what intellectual threads in the Philippine political discourses connected it to the corollary anti-imperial and positive political imaginings of its Asian neighbors. Mm -hmm. um, did, you, did you know that you wanted to do Filipino history uh, throughout graduate school or? Yes, I did, I did. Um, I, I knew I also wanted to uh, look at East-East relations and contact between mm -hmm. peripheries. Um, and I think the most natural grounding uh, for me was the Philippines. I was living away from the Philippines at the time and unsure whether I would return um, professionally. And so this gave me a sort of lifelong way to be um, interacting with the region and as well as the country from which I hail. Right, right. And, um, you know, it's, it, we'll get into this, but you make important connections between the Philippines and, and China. And then for, for me, more surprisingly, connections with Japan. But one of the things that I was most pleased about is your um, the making connections throughout Southeast Asia. And, and this really is a book about Southeast Asia. And as we're 
we were chatting previously before the interview, one of, one of my frustrations with Southeast Asian um, history is oftentimes it's very siloed in the nation state. And there's, you know, not as many scholars that do this comparative, not even comparative history, but sort of interconnected Southeast Asian history. Um, yeah. what, what, what inspired you to, to go down this path of East-East relations or, or to look at the Philippines within Southeast Asia? Yeah. Um, so basically, I think that there is a sense that I was working within Asian historiography and imperial historiography, as well as Southeast Asian and Philippine historiography. And the turn of the 20th century is such a pivotal, crucial turning point and a global moment with a scramble for Africa, intensification of colonialism and monopoly capitalism, imperial consolidation and violence. Um, and especially in Southeast Asia, it is a region-wide moment. Um, and yet the contemporaneous Philippine revolution of 1896 to 1905 um, was treated in the literature as if it takes place in a completely different corner of the world without any uh, mention or reference to the surrounding region of tumult and um, change. And I just thought that there must be something missing there yeah. or you know, perhaps our, our perspectives have been too imperial or too Eurocentric, where the internationalization of Philippine revolutionary historiography um, occurred along imperial lines. So um, comparing the Philippines uh, with its sort of European intellectual connections or to the former colonial powers uh, possessions such as Puerto Rico. So you can draw a connection to Spain and the US at the same time. And that was really important work. Um, I, you know, I really look up to people like Julian Goh who make those kinds of connections. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking that there's a sort of longer history and backdrop in Asia itself. And especially because it was such a moment of change and tumult, um, I wanted to see whether we can return this foundational moment of Philippine history to this region itself and to East and Southeast Asian history. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in a second, I want to ask you some more about how the the book is an intervention in the historiography, but that's that's uh, I, that in, a, in its on its own deserves much praise. Um, so, you know, I'm afraid that many of our listeners may not be as well versed in Filipino history as um, maybe they should be, or and, and definitely not as you are. Um, so, could you give us, you know, sort of a quick run through of this time period, and you know, what are the, what are the sort of the key phases in this revolution? And you and you and you consciously define this as a long Filipino revolution, right? You just, the book, the book title is 1887 to 1912, but you just talked about the revolution as 1896 to 1905. And I know that there's a couple of different things at play there, but could you just sort of give us, you know, in a few minutes, sort of the basic framework of this history? Yeah, absolutely. So the end of the 19th century sees a very dramatic reduction in the commercial, intellectual, and religious isolation of Filipinas, which is the name of the archipelago under Spanish colonialism. Um, and there's a moment of Spanish liberalism that really sort of raises the political expectations of the emerging Manileño middle class and native clergy. Um, yet the Principalia, who are the traditional native elites through whom the Spanish colonizers affected governance at the local level, gained the most from these 19th century reforms. Um, but the economic developments of the mid to late 19th century um, had caused a new mestizo class to ascend and the propaganda movement um, that I discuss um, a lot in the book is formed by a group of mestizo ilustrados, which is the term for the educated elite, um, who represented a transition from the principalia sort of aristocratic colonial 
elitist reform position to a more national role. Um, Actually, let me, let me interrupt because there are two really important terms there. And I was, I was familiar with the term illustrato, but maybe if you could define that. But also, could you um, give a definition of the, the propaganda movement and who are the propagandists? Yeah. So the illustrados, um, there's a lot of um, hemming and hawing in the literature about the exact definition, and it's very slippery. Um, and I, rather than get into the weeds of that, I'll just say that I use it to term as a, as to mean the educated elite. Um, and um, for my purposes, I really focus on the illustrados who formed the propaganda movement, which began in 1875 and ended in 1895 and grew out of a loose set of independent critiques of the Philippine colonial condition. Um, and it also um, inherits from the, the politicization of the Cavite incident of 1872, which is an unsuccessful mutiny of soldiers and laborers, uh, which resulted in um, an execution of the participants and suspected sympathizers and was a very important moment of disillusionment with Mother Spain. Um, it also marks the end of that moment of Spanish liberalism that had visited the islands and a much more reactionary regime um, follows and inflames and further politicizes the upwardly mobile ilustrados who had both the means to be educated abroad as well as in Manila. And in this is very important because Manila or the archipelago rather of the Philippines is extremely divided ethno-linguistically um, and it's only the upper echelons of the provincial elite who then in the late 19th century begin to move to Manila and to meet one another as fellow Filipinos rather than as a Kapampangan and an Ilocano, for example. Right. Uh, and and the the, fact these, these are the folks that Benedict Anderson talks about, right? Exactly. The leads exactly. that go, go to the capital, the, the colonial yeah. capital, and meet each other. But I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. And, go on. No, absolutely. Yeah. And then they also go abroad to Europe. And then in Europe, the Ilustrados who um, sort of really bring the propaganda movement together there abroad had the dual goals of demonstrating through their works their intellectual and cultural equality with their colonizers, as well as to critique Spanish colonial rule. Um, and their newspaper, La Solidaridad, is the main mouthpiece. Um, but another work that is um, very famous within this movement is José Rizal's searing critique of Spanish colonial rule, Noli Metangere. Um, and he eventually is executed in um, for in part this book and charges of sedition and rebellion and subversion um, because the Philippine revolution that comes on the heels of the propaganda movement and is its intellectual inheritor uh, breaks out in 1896 and had the novels in part as inspiration. So I guess to close this last bit of history that we cover, um, the propaganda movement fails uh, and Jose Rizal among others realized that the true battlefield was in Asia rather than Europe. And at home, political agitation was increasing. And the Katipunan, um, which is the secret society started by Andres Bonifacio, um, begins the Philippine Revolution in August of 1896. Um, and the first Philippine Republic that results is also known as the Malolos Republic. And it's the government that the Philippine Revolution erects following the Declaration of Philippine Independence by General Emilio Aguinaldo on June 12, 1898. Um, and Aguinaldo becomes the first elected president with Apolinario Mabini as the first president of the cabinet. And this all took place straddling the Spanish-American War. So whereas right, yeah. the Is the Republic declared, it's after the uh, Dewey shows up in Manila Harbor, right? Yeah, so it basically the revolution begins fighting against Spain and it ends successfully as the archipelago is taken over by its new colonial power, the US. And in the middle, there's a portion, there's a bit of back and forth as to whether 
um, the Americans can be an ally for the U.S. or not. And they sort of uh, present themselves as, um, as potential allies. And Aguinaldo declares independence under the aegis of the U.S., he says, though he's then shut out um, from the Battle of Manila and the sort of transfer of sovereignty takes place above their heads between one civilized Western white power to another. Right. And, and then um, what happens after the Americans move in? I mean, when does, when, when's the end point of the revolution? I've, I mean, I've seen 1902, previous use at 1905. The book cover says 1912. When, when, when is the <laughs> end of this long revolution? So um, I go with 1905 when the last um, sort of right-hand man and ally of Bonifacio surrenders, but um, the American history tends to um, use 1902 um, with sort of their formal declaration of ending. Um, the book itself goes until 1912, though I don't I think the revolution does. It's just the time period in which I'm looking at um, Philippine Pan-Asianism um, and peripheral Pan-Asianism a little more broadly. Um, alongside this kind of burgeoning national conscious and foundation of the Philippine nation. And, and forgive my ignorance, but the, the continued sort of counterinsurgency campaigns in the far south and the so-called Moro land and, and Pershing's sort of infamous operations down there, that would not be part of the revolution? Um, I see that more as part of the American colonization and sort of making their rule effective throughout the archipelago and consolidating that rather than necessarily um, counting Mindanao as part of the Philippine Revolution. Mm. Um, the history of the South has always been a thing apart a little bit. Right, and the, the Sultanate of, of Sulu and so forth, they've got a different agenda and they're not yeah. in communication with the Ilustrados in the same way, right? No, I'm um, yeah. yeah. not part of the story, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I hope that someone else uh, may be able to do better work than I can in that sense, but yeah, they're not part yeah. of my story. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I just, just, just to clarify for the yeah. listeners and, and, and for me, to be honest. <laughs> um, so um, in, in many ways, this book is a, a serious intervention, uh, a correction, perhaps, um, a revision of Filipino history. Um, can you please tell us about some of the dominant narratives of the revolution and, and of Filipino historiography and, and how you wanted to challenge them with this book? You've touched on this already, but... Yeah, uh, um, so... Just um, quickly, you know, the, the scene that um, the Philippine Revolution finds itself in um, is, you know, contemporaneous and shows, you know, the French conquest of Cambodia, Vietnam and Laos and the creation of French Indochina by 1897. You know, there's the full extension of direct Dutch colonial rule throughout the Netherlands East Indies from 1872 to 1910. The centralization of British power in the Federated Malay States from the 1890s to the 1910s the British annexation of Upper Burma following the Third Anglo-Burmese War in 1885 and formation of the Burmese nationalist movement until the 1920s, all alongside the emergence of Japan as a non-Western imperial power after the Meiji Restoration of 1868 and exertion of its dominance in Korea and Taiwan in 1876-1895. Um, but as I was saying earlier, this truly transnational and regional historical setting has barely been incorporated into the locally and Western-orientated historiography of the Philippine Revolution at all, if it is even mentioned. Um, there are a couple of articles that had talked about Mariano Ponce, one um, illustrado propagandist, um, who becomes a foreign emissary to Japan under the First Philippine Republic and his sort of itineraries um, in Japan and elsewhere in Asia trying to gain arms and ammunition. But there's, there hasn't been anything that seriously um, looks at the Philippine Revolution's 
Asian moorings and setting and potential connections and reverberations. Um, so I wanted to do that. And the book that I um, ended up writing um, is the first book that uh, treats the Philippine revolution as not divorced from the intellectual ferment and political tumult of Asia. Um, and there is actually an ongoing um, assumption I'm working on, which is uh, working against, which is that the Filipino self-image is historically non-Asian, seeing itself as belonging to the Western hemisphere. And early post-war and Cold War Southeast Asian studies, such as D.G. Hall's seminal works, exclude the Philippines from the studies of the region entirely. Um, and as I was saying before, internationalization of the Philippine Revolution's historiography has occurred along imperial lines. Um, and comparisons in social sciences often bring us um, to look at Latin America. Yeah, and so I, I've seen I've seen the Philippines described as like the westernmost outpost of Latin America, right? <laughs> and that's not untrue. I yeah. just want to recover a wider range of structures of thought um, mm -hmm. and influence, and also to restore the Philippines because there's a trouble in sort of deracinating the islands to merely be projected onto an imperial plane. And there are longer histories at work. Um, and it's sort of imperial or teleological to see them in this way, I think. Um, yeah, so I wanted to restore a bit of what else was going on. And I actually didn't have to go very far. It's not like I was recovering all these archival sources nobody's looked at. I went back to the very same archival, traditional archival sources that we all have looked at. And the Philippine Revolution is the most discussed moment in Philippine history. So I'm not I'm not breaking new ground in terms of the actual sources. I went back to the same sources, but lifted out what I think had been neglected. Um, and it was all right there. Um, and um, meanwhile, my second intervention, if you'll allow me, is actually within the historiography of Pan-Asianism. So the existing literature attends to the successive failures to transnationalize the ideology of Pan-Asianism within the cynic world, highlighting Japanese-Chinese rivalry and the failure to extend Pan-Asianism to Korea but it ignores the pan-Asianism of the non-Cynic periphery. Um, and the revolutionary First Philippine Republic's foreign collaboration represents the first instance of fellow pan-Asianists lending material aid toward anti-colonial revolution against a Western power um, and the harnessing of transnational pan-Asian networks of support and association and activism toward doing so. Um, and I believe that this material dimension is crucial to understanding the pan-Asianism of the colonized periphery and to incorporating the periphery into this history as is the affective dimension in which fantasies and imagination and a certain kind of emotionality form much of the periphery's engagement with the model of Meiji era Japan and Asian solidarity. My book tries to argue for both lenses um, as, or both dimensions as lenses through which we can make the pan-Asianism of the periphery legible to that of the center. Um, and the center tends to discount the pan-Asianism of the colonized periphery as true pan-Asianism because of the interpretation that it's insufficiently transnational or pure. They charge up because of the periphery's nationalism for which purpose they adopted, if not instrumentalized pan-Asianism, um, that it discounts it. Um, and I argue that for the colonized periphery, no strategy could be purely transnational because of the localized nature of everyday colonial oppression. So their immediate and most vital fight was national. However, they also understood that any victory won in narrowly national terms would always be tenuous or incomplete because of what they interpreted interpreted to be the transnational racial dimension to Western colonialism, as well as their social Darwinist framework for understanding the larger international sphere. Um, so for anti-colonial nationalists, it's two sides of the same coin. Um, anti-colonialism and nationalism required operating on both levels at once, 
And I think we need to take the pan-Asianism of the colonized periphery seriously by admitting this difference. Yeah, no, the, the pan-Asianism discussion was really eye-opening for me. And, um, you know, having someone who's worked mostly in, in the colonial history of Vietnam and, and to a lesser extent, uh, Cambodia and, and, and the Dutch East Indies, Indonesia, I, I thought that was fantastic. Um, so what, what, what does this mean for, what does your inter- intervention mean for Asia, uh, Filipino studies in particular? Like, what would you, what would you like to see the impact of this beyond Filipino studies? Hmm. Um, well, I think actually the best way to return Philippine history to Asian history is to look at precisely the actors and subjects I don't look at in my book, which <laughs> have long been considered part of Asian history. So the Muslim South we referred to, which is, um, you know, the, Fili- the South of the Philippines in Mindanao has long been part of the larger Sulu zone and Malay world, as well as the sailors, merchants and traders who have enjoyed trade and exchange with Southeast and East Asia since at least the second century AD. Um, but um, as I said, without even going into these lines, I wanted to show how even the mainstay foundational moment um, is, has been connected to Southeast and East Asia. Um, and I think of Asia in general as this sort of blank canvas upon which you can project your fantasies and fears. So it's a very interesting index to look at the global paradigm shifts, especially across the 20th century. And uh, it's a nice way to sort of thread, I think, the Philippines to larger global questions and to the region writ large. Um, in terms of the, um, on a sort of more ontological or methodological level, I also, um, you know, affirm that there is a natural reality to the region of Southeast Asia, in addition to it being a political construct, uh, because it's described by a biotic zone stretching from the Marianas Trench to the Bay of Bengal. And I think it's time we orient Philippine studies and Southeast Asian studies towards this. Um, and hopefully we can incorporate some more um, environmental history and environmental history methods in, into our other uh, branches of Southeast Asian studies. Mm-hmm. So what, what's the what's the elevator pitch of your argument for uh, in um, Asian place, Filipino nation? What's the, you know, the 90 second, two minute argument? Oh God, I'm really bad at this. So <laughs> I'll try and speak quickly, but... Um, I'm going to start a stopwatch. Ready? And <laughs> go. <laughs> I argue that the um, early Filipino Asianism of the 20th, 20th century is crucial to the Philippine propaganda movement's political argumentation against Spain, to the concept of the Filipino nation that they're constructing, and to the political mobilization and organizing that follows thereafter in the revolution, um, and that this, their foreign collaboration represents the first instance of fellow pan-Asianists lending material aid toward anti-colonial revolution against the Western power, um, and that the propagandists first constructed a classical Asia to which they belonged, then the Malay race and its historical environment, and finally, a generalized Philippines that also rested on those prior two geographies, and that this intellectual armature and grounds of both the Philippine nation and the Philippine revolution um, embeds Asia, the Malay race, and cosmopolitan Asianism into the foundation of the Filipino nation in a way that has not been acknowledged, um, and that connects this foundation of Philippine history to Southeast Asian and East Asian history. Um, next, I argue that the Filipino Asianists and Philippine revolutionaries saw themselves as leading the charge toward an anti-colonial future within colonized Asia, with the Philippines leading brethren Malay nations toward that shared vision, working alongside the modern leader of Japan. And that because of the racialized social Darwinist framework through which they interpreted the international sphere, they believed nationalism and racialized internationalism to be existentially entangled. And the same obtained for the Vietnamese scholar gentry. Um, and this is a point of interest as we investigate the history of the rise of the nation state as the legitimate political form. Mm-hmm. I, I love that term, 
cosmopolitan Asianness, and that 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 for me that is so useful in understanding some of the things that were going on in Hanoi, and the time period I look at, and what's going on in Batavia and so forth, and maybe obviously Singapore, right? But like mm-hmm. that is that is so that is so great the cosmopolitan Asianness. Um, so the this this project, as with all colonial research projects, is very transnational work. Uh, but even more so as you connect the Philippines to Japan, to China, and to, to Vietnam, uh, most explicitly. But archives are almost always organized along national lines, or in the case of the kind of stuff you and I work on, along imperial lines, the old colonial empires. Um, so where did you do your archival work? Um, so my archival work was basically, you know, along imperial and national lines, too. <laughs> um, I, have, I did most of my work in Spain, the U.S. and the Philippines, but I also went to Macau, um, to Hong Kong, to Singapore, and to Cuba. Um, and unfortunately, nothing availed of um, what happened in Cuba, um, but I was very hopeful that I could find connections between Jose Marti and um, Jose Rizal. Um, and what you have said is like a very close comparison, but not actual connection. I've always, um, I've always wondered about that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I teach a 20th century world history survey and I talk about both of them and students always ask. And I'm like, it's so similar. Yeah, just sort of two ships that pass in the night. I mean, exactly. fellow travelers, but no connection. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, Pham Boi Cho and Mariano Ponce are the same way. So um, a lot of the Vietnamese comparisons that I do, I, I read through sort of French sources and then also the existing secondary literature. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, there's no record that or his contemporaries were in the same associations as mm. Mariano Ponce or Jose Ramos were, um, though we have records that they both are in associations that have Vietnamese and Siamese and Burmese and Filipinos and Koreans all um, there and present and talking about common um, problems. So it's a shame, but I couldn't find it. Yeah. Uh, being being uh, cosmopolitan Asians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, tell, us, tell us a bit about Filipino racial imaginations in this time period. How do the historical figures that you're, you're looking at see themselves? Who did they claim to be as their, I don't know what to call it, racial relatives, their racial family? Um, what did Malayness mean, being, being Malay? Um, and how does Japan figure into their thinking? Yeah, so this is a, a bit of a complicated one to unpack. But um, um, first thing I'll say is that the Illustrados argued against a fixed ranking of races, supporting a multilinear evolutionism. So envisioning multiple strands of evolution in different places, which implies an ag- agnostic equality across all, rather than like a progressive orthogenetic Darwinism where you're either you're backwards or forwards within a sort of single progression. Um, but at the same time, the Illustrados' use of racial categories had its own hierarchizing logic and involved responses to Western practices of ranking that only served to legitimize the framework of that hierarchizing. Um, So to get at how they constructed certain racial affinities over others, um, I think first we have to look at the construction of Asia more broadly, as it was the first geography upon which their construction of race sat, and um, then decided how they picked out who was and wasn't a racial brother. So um, the propaganda movement inscribed the new Philippine nation within a more ancient Asian landscape imbued with civilizational importance, recognizable even to the Europeans, rather than arising on an island with no visible ancient ruins or historical grandeur. And they apparently thought this association with an older, richer, documented civilizational realm necessary due to the visible lack of ancient kingdoms and ruins around which they could assemble their own unique Filipinized nationalism. 
And it was in this sense that constructions of Asia became important. And the propagandist Filipinos linked race to civilization using a blanket biological objective and scare quotes race concept to allow them to mount a historicized subjective claim to civilization. So the illustrators were largely constructing Asia in order for the Filipinos to have a place in this diachronic Darwinian staged world through racial association with Asia's past greatness, as well as to level its stagedness by asserting a unitary civilization in whose history they were now included by virtue of race. So this is how they explain away the rise and fall of great powers and state of current material inequality. Um, so it was through this construction of Asia that the Filipinos identified and rested upon a generalized classical Asia, identifying with China's historical greatness, but yet not with the pure culturally unassimilated immigrant Chinese in their midst whom they denigrated um, in the same manner as the Spanish had. Uh, the Katipunan, meanwhile, of the Philippine Revolution similarly understood Philippine history as part of Asian history. And they located the Philippine pre-colonial condition of independence and autonomy as occurring within Asia which gave an, um, a corollary importance in their political imaginary to this Asia where they held this kind of originary sovereign autonomy. And they made explicit, explicit mention of Japan and the good relations that the Philippines held with Japan in pre-colonial period um, that allowed them to live with liberty, peace, and prosperity. And that's a very interesting move. They understood the symbol of Japan and its power, and they actually wrote in their bulletins that the Katipunan materials were printed in Japan, in Yokohama. And this was not actually true, but it was a tactic to drive membership for their secret societies. Um, so now with regard to race more specifically, the propaganda movement was very anxious for Filipinos to be recognized as part of the Malay race. And this is because it was their way to counter their European charge that the archipelago was overrun by an anarchy of tribes and races, and was a way of locating the Filipino in a larger grouping. Um, anti-colonial nationalisms formed in the interstices of the colonized and colonizers imaginary. So it's no surprise that while often arguing against or subverting the Western epistemologies that were arrayed against them, the colonized also integrated those very epistemologies into their anti-colonial nationalism, particularly with regard to race. Um, in terms of the specificities, so for example, Jose Rizal declared himself to be Malayo Tagalo, and he explored hypotheses of shared racial and civilizational origins for Filipinos with Sumatrans, Polynesians, and even Japanese. And La Solidaridad declared that the Japanese are Malay and that the Filipino are Malay and that, quote, those who have closely studied the Malay race and its ancient civilization cannot cast aside the qualities of nobility and virility that characterize the Malay. Um, and they hotly challenged the idea that the Filipinos are not Malay. Um, and they, um, Mariana Ponce dedicates a whole article um, to a Spanish writer excoriating him for claiming that the Filipinos are not Malay and he said that everyone, even the school children of Austria and Germany, know that the Filipinos, except for the Negritos, are Malay. Um, and the Negritos is the blanket term for the nativist, animist, tribal Filipinos. And this deep offense that is taken just shows how unstable these racial constructions are yeah. and how global hierarchies and international perceptions of civilizational achievement are deeply implicated in their constructed nationalism, even as they claim to disavow them. Um, and as we can see, we see that exactly with this disavowal of the Negritos. Uh, the Negritos are a liability to the Ilustrados quest to win political civilizational recognition for the Filipinos, or they're also an easy instrument to shore up their own racial superiority. You know, as a way to say to Europe, you know, your denigration of Philippines, uh, Filipinos fits them, but not us. We are different from what your stereotype uh, has in mind. Um, 
Meanwhile, Jose Rizal asserts that the Spanish government um, recognizes racial similarity and affinity, not only between the Filipinos and other Malays, but also with the Japanese, who he says differs greatly from the Chinese. Um, and the ethnic Chinese commercial minority is a repeated target of prejudice in the propaganda movement. And there are many references in their writings to the idea of cynic vice. And in their interpretation, the Chinese stand apart from the rest of Asia, while the Japanese stand with the Southeast Asians and Filipinos racially and culturally, even though the Japanese are integrated members of the cynic world. And the inclusion of the Japanese, but not the Chinese on these terms is a difficult paradox to reconcile, particularly given the mixed Chinese ethnicity of the propagandists themselves, um, except by recognition of the fact that the propagandists um, want to aggrandize the Filipino by claiming the Japanese as amongst their racial kind at this special moment of the Japan's rising power, while holding a status superior to the Chinese immigrants in their midst in the same manner as the Spanish had, as the Filipino elite wants to just sort of slot in and take over the, the role that the Spanish played. One last thing I'll say is that, um, one thing to note that's interesting is that the Ilustrados theorized race as bearing unique developments arising from climate and environment and place. And so such a particularized evolution builds into race the importance of place and naturalizes it, embedding it into one's historical racial development. So it's not merely a, a social construction. Race is a concrete natural reality coming out of the place in which it evolved and the climate and the constant ways of thinking it um, engenders. Yeah, I enjoyed the sections in the beginning of the book where you talk about the theorizing of place. Um, and, you know, you embody that so gracefully in the title of Asian Place Filipino Nation, showing that tension between place thinking and nation thinking. Um, I, I got to ask, um, and, and maybe maybe you haven't seen it, but um, any reaction from the Japanese on being uh, categorized as Malay? I mean, I, I suspect that at this high point of Japanese nationalism, they possibly might take offense to that, or or maybe not. I don't know. Did you did you see any reactions on that? So uh, there are very very many threads of pan Asianism and work on the Japanese side to sort of give definition to Asia, um, and it, it the the scale of Asia moves. Um, and there are some who are more generous and basically like Miyazaki Toten, for example, a very famous. Mm -hmm who works with Mariano Ponce directly and says, you know, who formerly had had a more cynic delimitation of Asia and then meets Mariano Ponce and says to his contemporaries and colleagues that they're just like us. Um, their soul is just like us. They want the same thing as us. We have the same civilizational destiny. And so this idea of civilizational destiny ends up forming a bridge by which Southeast Asians can be brought into the Japanese idea of Asia and Asia's future. That, is something distinct from thinking of yourself as Malay, but it is a bridge that's uh, made in certain corners. And then there are other corners of Pan-Asianism that discount this entirely and only look at the um, older cynic delimitation. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you, you've, this is an intellectual history, but it, these intellectuals live in the real world um, what were some of the real-world implications for this? I mean, there's there's uh, missions to get aid from Japan at several points, and this is a revolution, and revolutionaries need a couple of things, um, one of which is guns, right? So what were some of the, the real-world implications of this kind of thinking? Yeah, so uh, in 1892, Rizal goes to Sandakan Borneo to try and obtain a land grant from um, the British colonizers 
to establish a Filipino colony, you know, purportedly at home amongst its racial brothers. That's one example of something a little bit more material. And then in terms of, and he desires to build a school in Hong Kong or Japan in the same manner that Fan Boy Cho eventually does successfully with the Dongzhu movement. Um, and um, in terms of the revolution itself, um, there are uh, private individual uh, supporters from Japan. So on, the official aid never comes to the disappointment of the Katipunan who try repeatedly um, to get the Japanese empire to play the role that France did to the Americans essentially in their revolution and they frame it in that way. Um, but, and, and um, would this be assistance against the Spanish and yeah. then the Americans or? First against the Spanish and then they formalize it under the first Philippine Republic when they send Mariano Ponce as the emissary to Japan. And it's a budget item in Aguinaldo's government that ranks fourth out of 28 different budget items in the middle of a war. So they see it as very important. Um, and then basically there's a, also a Hong Kong committee and in these different cities, I think that they're most successful in procuring arms and ammunition, but also in shaping the foreign and Asian public opinion on the rightness of the revolution. Um, they also are successful in um, sending a few Japanese officers to train um, the Philippine Revolutionary Army in the Philippines, actually. Um, and there are connections and networks that form with Sun Yat-sen, who becomes lifelong friends with Marian Ponce, for example, Kang Yu-wei, Liang Chichao. Um, and so the, they, they work together to try and share arms, potentially come into agreements where if you can use the deposits in Philippine ports for Chinese arms, then maybe the Philippines can get first use of those arms. So there are real um, negotiations at work. Um, there's also at least one case where um, a Japanese um, observer to the American, um, American side during the Philippine-American war phase of the revolution ends up passing information back and forth freely to the First Philippine Republic, including at one point that Manila is to be attacked three days hence, so quite sensitive information. Um, so there are lots of things, uh, examples of this sort of pan-Asianism in motion, and it's a very material kind of pan-Asianism that rests on um, yeah, arms and ammunition and intelligence. Yeah. By the way, uh, Sun Yat-sen and I went to the same high school. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> not not in, in Honolulu, not that other school that Obama went to. <laughs> so we, we were the, the more famous guy. <laughs> um, so along, the, along these lines of pan-Asianism, um, what, um, you, you, well, in the book, you argue that the Sino-Japanese War of 1894, 1895 was actually more important for these revolutionaries in, in their thinking and their, their, their imagination than the Russo-Japanese War of 1904, 1905, which I think is more familiar to many, many historians. Um, what, what, why was this and what were the different impacts of this war and how, how, did, this, how did the Sino-Japanese War impact Pan-Asianist thinking? Yeah, um, so... Um, there's been some discussion about the impact of the Russo-Japanese War. Um, of course, for sort of Western observers, it's this absolute deep, like, epistemic shock. Um, and um, whereas elsewhere in um, Asia, so for China, Japan moves from being a potential model for China to increasingly becoming a threat, especially in the Northeast China territory where the Russo-Japanese War was fought. And then in the colonial Malay world, um, you know, there's widespread hope that Japan would convert to Islam. And that there's a shift from seeing the Ottoman Empire to now seeing Japan as Muslim Southeast Asia's potential savior from Dutch colonialism. And then in the Philippines, you see school newspapers ecstatically cheering the news of the first defeat in centuries of a Western power 
by an Asian one and the first to use modern military power. But Paul Rodel has argued that in Southeast Asia, the Russo-Japanese War actually made a minimal impression outside of the Philippines and Vietnam, um, the countries that did seek direct Japanese aid in their struggles. Um, and there's also suggestion in the literature that perhaps the shock of the Russo-Japanese War and of an Asian power defeating a white Western one was strongest most for the West itself and not necessarily Asia, where the idea of a strong modern Asian power may have not been as shocking. It may seem a little bit more natural. Um, so there's a, an attempt to revise that kind of that sense of shock. Um, though um, there is, um, I think, an important turning point from the Russo-Japanese War on um, where the 19... 02 Anglo-Japanese alliance and 1908 Franco-Japanese agreement start to show um, around this time frame that Japan's increasingly associating with the European and American imperialists over its Asian neighbors. And that tempers many potential Southeast Asian fantasies of Asian solidarity under Japanese leadership. That said, the idea of Japanese-led pan-Asianism lives on despite increasing Japanese imperialism. And this is also a testament to the kind of realpolitik social Darwinist framing of many anti-colonial nationalists. Um, you know, Vietnamese scholar gentry members uh, write that it's not unusual for nations to disappear and be eaten up, um, which just goes to show that the international sphere is essentially amoral competition. And if you accept that, that from that standpoint, it seems natural to rely on stronger racial allies within your camp, even if that comes at the price of a certain ambivalence toward potentially imperial elements embedded in pan-Asianism, as well as the actual increasing imperialism of Japan. That said, as you mentioned, the Sino-Japanese War rather than the Russo-Japanese War is what had galvanized the first wave of pan-Asian fantasies in the Philippines and Vietnam. And uh, I think that it's important to pause on that because I think that it, it makes sense to go further back in the timeline um, when Japanese-led solidarity and emancipatory pan-Asianism seem more like a natural fit. Um, understanding that earlier moment is crucial not only to appreciating the ultimate disillusionment and tragedy of the violence that Southeast Asians suffered under Japanese occupation, but it also helps us to avoid its teleology. There were earlier moments of political possibility and fantasy, and they were not unimportant, even if they were perhaps shorter lived. And in fact, the genealogies of transnational racial solidarities that follow bear their imprint. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> um, so what could you tell us about the uh, the impact of the Filipino Revolution in Asia? And um, you know, in in world history, uh, we often make a big deal out of the the Haitian Revolution, this being the establishment of the the first Black Republic. Um, is the the Malolo Republic the first Asian Republic? And what is what is, what symbolism does this have throughout Asia? And how does this reverberate in Pan-Asian thinking at the time? Yes, um, the Philippine, the very short-lived first Philippine Republic does um, represent the first modern nationalist Republican government and uprising um, in Asia and also of the 20th century because it precedes the Irish rebellion of 1916. Um, and it's a turning point in Southeast Asia because rather than simply failing to maintain a traditional state such as in Vietnam and Burma or largely succeeding in maintaining a traditional state such as in Cambodia or Thailand, it was briefly successful in establishing a new thing, a secular republic. Um, and Rebecca Carl has argued that for Chinese intellectuals, um, it, the Philippine Revolution is um, persuasively cast colonialism as a global discursive problem um, and a characterization that facilitates the universalization of the Philippine national experience beyond its particularities and endures beyond the, the timeline of the Philippine situation itself. 
Um, and later on, you have um, people such as Mai Minghua, who's a Chinese reformist and colleague of Liang Qichao, um, writing about the abstract values of the literary trope of the knight errant. And that's the kind of trope that also echoes in um, Vietnamese writings. Um, and Mai, by 1900, links this trope um, to the Philippine Revolution and says it's being actively exemplified by people such as the Filipinos who had risen up and was not being exemplified by those who had failed to revolt, such as the Indians and potentially the Chinese. And um, this interpretation is really fascinating because it blends sort of the Japanese shishi with the Philippine revolutionary figures, with the trope of the knight errant, um, creating this altogether new sort of modern national role out of a formerly heroic individual role. Um, and this figure was historicized and particularized, drawing upon specific examples within this Asian geography of political affinity, um, and was also generalized as a type to be embodied. Um, and it slotted the Filipinos into this larger sort of consciousness of what it means to be modern um, in the 20th century. Um, there's a Guangdong intellectual Wu Jijiao who links the Philippines to China via uh, a common historical and geographical spatial Asianness while also demarking the Philippines, not Japan, as the Asian pioneer, being the first to actively defend independence for Asia in this era. Um, and it's interesting that he's alighting the Filipinos rising up with the Philippines as rising up for Asia more generally, also assuming a broader Asian geography and political affinity and action on the part of the revolution. Um, and I do think that the revolution thought of it in itself in this way too. Yeah, and, and there was a... Uh, a section in the book where you cite a, uh, an article in a Chinese journal about about the uh, Filipino uh, Republic being crushed by the Americans, and uh, you know they're they're talking about is it the article written in blood or is that Fun Boy Chow? That's Fun Boy Chow. Yeah, Fun Boy Chow, but but it's but it's it's something that, as melodramatic as that where they're yeah, saying yeah. and they they say oh you know it's horrible this Republic was crushed and look how evil these white people are I forget yeah. what the exact quote was but it was just I just like the. I hadn't really thought about what the impact would be in China of seeing this republic crushed at the same time that Sun Yat-sen is trying to agitate for the creation of a Chinese republic. Exactly. So exactly. Really eye-opening. I just, I just, I loved that um, that uh, East-East thinking, as you as you say. So in the in the final chapter, you conclude with a discussion of the afterlife of the Filipino Revolution. Um, could you walk us through some of the sections of the chapter and, and what, what are the afterlife or afterlives yeah. of these uh, the revolution? Yeah, so one of the things I talk about um, briefly is just sort of like mapping the reverberations um, within the region. I mean, in Southeast Asia, you have leaders as late as Sukarno referencing the revolution as inspiration. And even today, you frequently meet Malaysians named Rizal after the Filipino Piro Jose, um, who's often referred to as the greatest Malay. Um, and in and Indonesia, Rizal Tanjung, right? Yeah, yeah, the, fam exactly. the famous, the famous Indonesian surfer. <laughs> yeah, is he, is he named after Jose Rizal? Do you know? You know, I, I imagine he must be. There's so many Rizals in Indonesia. I think he's from the Moluccas. I think he's from the north. Okay. I, don't, I don't think he's Balinese. But actually, the governor of North Sumatra in 1998 is General Tengku Rizal Nordin, and he's noted for reestablishing Malay culture for the first time following the Indonesian Revolution. So. Uh. Uh, Who knows? Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh no, not at all. <laughs> and and uh, li listeners, I'm going to out us. Both Nicole and I are surfers, so we, we had to, <laughs> had to throw that one in there. <laughs> um, so then there's, yeah. there's also, you know, Tan Malaka. Um, you know, in his autobiography, 1948, talks about the Philippine Islands as you know basically being a part of Greater Indonesia and describes 
Bonifacio as an indigenous Indonesian from Tondo on the outskirts of Manila. Um, and so I just sort of like map the different ways in which you get pick up these later stage kind of um, references to the revolution. But then in a more serious way, I kind of take a brief tour of Southeast Asia to show the general experience of the regional nationalist elite um, had of what I call growing up with Japan and the general experience of what it meant to the region's future post-colonial leaders. Um, to grow up with the symbol of Japan and in many ways actual um, direct association and aid um, from Japan to establish post-colonial futures. And then, um, you know, the sort of the ironic and tragic and violent turns that takes under World War II. But there's also one moment I, I, I look at um, where besides looking at uh, tracing sort of the, uh, the pockets of Asianism that still reside in the Philippines specifically throughout the 20th century and sort of mapping it um, as they wax and wane and uh, come into fashion and fall out. Um, uh, we trace sort of from Pan-Asianism moving to a more ethnically limited Pan-Malayism to a more transnational third worldism and kind of the scales that are involved there and, and how um, these things are linked. But then I, I linger on a specific moment where you have um, during World War II, um, the Japanese having the inverse of the Dongzhu movement, where they take different young um, uh, native leaders of high potential and bring them to Tokyo and have them be the sort of future cadre um, within Southeast Asia of those who know the Japanese way and are prepared to implement it. Um, and they try and have them sort of physically embody and enact the idea of this greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere by having, you know, uh, Indonesian with Malay, with Filipino, uh, with Vietnamese, all in the same sort of bunkhouse, getting to know one another and representing their constituent nations and allowing them to sort of meet in this in this sphere. And it's very interesting because you have this um, one, uh, the diary, I, I, I rest heavily on the diary of this one student who fought on the side of the Americans, um, but then was taken by the Japanese um, and his changing perspectives and what he sees to be um, what's happening. Um, in the sort of intellectual life worlds he's, he's part of. Um, yeah, I think that's sort of the, the scope of that, that afterlife. I hope that someone with you know, greater skills than I do can take up the real actual transition because there's a sort of historical narrative um, that suggests a transition from Pan-Asianism to Third Worldism and Pan-Malayism, but we don't yet have a history that actually interrogates that intellectual history and the genealogies and how and why they change and whether these changes of scales bear their imprint um, in the successive uh, transnational solidarities. Yeah, and, you, and your, your discussion of this is really thought-provoking for me because I've been looking a lot at uh, monuments in, in Southeast Asia and Indonesia, Cambodia, and um, in Vietnam specifically. But if, if you go to Monas, the national monument in Jakarta, um, there's this, you know, incredible... Uh, uh, telling of Indonesian history and in the, in the bas reliefs around Manas. And um, like so many of these um, state commissioned historical um, statues and, and monuments, they really represent like, I mean, Dutch colonialism is, is clearly bad, but then Japanese, the Japanese period is just over the top bad. And oftentimes those three years get as much or four years get as much attention as the whole Dutch colonial period. Yeah. At the same time, we know that 
the Indonesian um, uh, National Army, the TNI, got its formation under Japanese tutelage during the, okay. this time period. And um, just such that that aspect of Pan-Asianism um, is just so complicated to work out. And um, the Indonesian state uh, has one narrative about it that seems to sort of suppress all that. Yeah. Um, so it was, for me, it was just really thought-provoking to read your um, your analysis on that. So you've been really generous with wide. It's sort of like, you know, you have the labor gangs, you know, in Indonesia that you're saying are helping the future sort of post-colonial state that are under the Japanese occupation. You have the similar thing happening in Burma and the the different kind of rhetorical strategies you have to make around, um, you know, your, your alliances and your, your disaffinities, first year affinities, but it's, it's all across. And it's, it's, uh, that's why I really see the region as sort of growing up in Japan. Yeah. and, yeah. and Aung San in, in Burma, Aung San's incredible exactly. political trajectory. I mean, exactly. I, I have to teach that to my to my undergraduates, <laughs> and it's like, wait, wait, which side is he on? Well, well, well he's on, yeah. he's on Burma's side. <laughs> they're going back and forth and back and forth. Yeah, it's um, very complex. Yeah. So you've been really generous through your time. This has been a great conversation. But before I let you go, I've got two more questions. Um, first, mm-hmm. can you recommend two books that the audience uh, should read on I don't know Filipino history on on the subject, on Pan-Asianism, whatever, whatever yeah. you recommend. Uh, um, so I think I would like, uh, it might be a little bit of a tease because I don't know how widely available it is outside the Philippines, but I do want to support local presses as well. And yes, there's please. Um, um, Anvil Press published a book by Rezil Mojares, who is um, a really eminent Philippine historian, um, especially of Philippine intellectual history. And it's a book called Isabelo's Archive. And it's a really eccentric um, but groundbreaking sort of book that tries to build an archive of popular knowledge in the Philippines, um, inspired by Isabella de los Reyes, who is an um, illustrator and propaganda member's own attempt. Um, and he was um, a folklorist, um, sort of um, intellectually. Um, and uh, Mojares does um, a really interesting sort of um, look at popular knowledge through essays, vignettes, extracts, um, sort of um, folklore, um, all within that same sort of time frame of Isabello. Um, and then the second book I think I would recommend is a book called Nature Pictorialized by Gina Crandall. Mm. Um, and it has nothing to do whatsoever with Southeast Asia, but it's more related <laughs> to my, my uh, current book project. Um, and it's about basically landscape painting and art history and the ways in which the idea of the picturesque and naturalistic images of the world around you um, reshape the actual natural world. Uh, The ways in which um, European but especially British aristocracy remade the world around them to adhere to a kind of ideal of the picturesque um, which had references to sort of um, the Middle Ages and classical um, sort of um, remnants and uh, an idea of perspective um, within painting. Um, yeah, this sort of pictorial conception of nature and how that overtakes our, our understanding of nature. Yeah, well, well, that leads me to my next question. I think, I think you just alluded to what are you working on now and what can we hope to see from you next? Um, I'm hesitant to say just because it took seven years to do this first book. So, you know, I defeat people now. And <laughs> no, then I'm no, like, oh, no rest for the weary. No rest for the weary. <laughs> but um, I'm trying to analyze uh, what I see as the co-constitution of class, 
and relationships with the natural environment. Mm. Um, so seeing the way your class is constituted by your relationship with the natural environment and your relationship with the natural environment is constituted by your class as a way to um, reinvigorate um, discussions of elite formation in the Philippines over the last hundred years, starting from the perspective of nature. Um, but I'm not trying to do a sort of deterministic kind of um, naturalized interpretation of class, but sort of uh, trying to see the ways in which elite subjectivity is inherently entangled with nature um, in ways that we don't acknowledge um, and to reframe um, nature as the bedrock of modern power. Um, and it's, it's not deterministic. There's a sort of, um, you know, it's, it's a sort of mutually embedded history, but I think it's an important perspective to bring back. Great. Well, I get to work. I want to, I want to, <laughs> I want to see that. So hey, Nicole, thank you so much for your time. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you so, so, so much, Michael. It's been such a pleasure and such a, such a treat for me to speak to you at de in depth about this book and to finally meet you after so long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. So this has been a conversation with the, Nicole Quinning Aboites about her recent book, Asian Place, Filipino Nation, A Global Intellectual History of the Philippine Revolution, 1887 to 1912, published by Columbia University Press in 2020. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.